the primary in Michigan is over. Uh, so much so, in fact, the one thing that I've noticed is you're seeing a lot of different foreign affairs weighing in on domestic affairs, on local races, on, on national races. One of the individuals that understands some of these issues better than anyone that I've ever been around or worked with is Dakota Rudisell from the Mort School of Law. Dakota has got a deep history of service to this government and works at The Ohio State University now. And so I wanted to get him on. He said, you bet. I'll give you some time. Dakota, good to have you back on News and Views. Always great to be here. You by now have looked at some of the results of Michigan. Uh, Obviously, there was a statement made for those individuals in Michigan where there is a a huge Palestinian uh, contingency. Uh, The the no contest or no commitment, however you want to define the word, uh, there were people that didn't vote for Joe Biden who normally would. Yeah, that's right. Uh, based on the numbers that we're seeing, it looks like about 13 percent of the votes cast in the Democratic presidential primary uh, yesterday in Michigan, about 13 percent um, were people who recorded uncommitted. And that was in response to um, some members in the Arab American community in um, Michigan saying that voters should do exactly that to send a message uh, to President Biden. And I think that's a pretty powerful message. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, you know, Biden is effectively running uncontested for, uh, you know, reelection to the presidency. And, you know, yet it's 13 percent, right? We're not willing to, you know, to vote for him. Um, you know, Michigan's been a swing state 2016, 2020, you know, in both, in both, you know, so Trump won Michigan very narrowly in 2016. Biden won it narrowly in 2020. So, you know, when you have that kind of uh, protest vote recorded, I think it's a real issue for Biden. Did, did you listen to some of the exit poll interviews? The the, the sense I got yeah. was that some of this uh, President Biden can't turn around. I mean, the, the, he could have a ceasefire right now. It wouldn't change some of these people's minds. Yeah, I think for some of them, I think that's right. Just, you know, like you say, when you just listen to, you know, Arab Americans in uh, Michigan and what they have to say, they're really, really frustrated and unhappy about it. And um, I think that that's right on the, you know, on, you know the context of the Israel uh, war with Hamas and, and uh, what, you know, the, you know, the massive uh, harm being inflicted uh, on Gaza, on the civilians there. Um you know, uh, as Israel rightly going after Hamas, right? But they're causing, you know, massive trauma, massive casualties among civilians in Gaza. And that's, I, I think, just as you say, I think just like a, 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 we don't know exactly how many, but a significant number of, you know, Arab Americans who normally vote Democratic, I think, just couldn't pull the lever for Biden. But I think what that does is it mirrors a larger problem that Biden has with, um, you know, voters who just think that he's just too old uh, for the job. You know, they may agree with him on policy issues or, you know, or, you know, be but they're 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 really, really concerned about that. And that's a very significant majority of Americans think that he's just he's just too old. So I, I think that he's got real things to address. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, and he's getting out there and talking about some of it. I mean, there was a recognition of of age when he did Seth Meyers the other night where he was talking about his age being not that much different than what clearly is going to be his opponent's age and Donald Trump, who mm-hmm. did have a win yesterday. But, you know, you, you look at the numbers with Trump and, you know, those weren't great numbers. That That's, that's uh, a big percentage of people 
that had an opportunity to vote for a man that served their party in the presidency who said they don't want him anymore. Yeah, well, and just, you know, I think the bigger picture, too, is when you look at the national polls, you know, a really large number of Americans, uh, you know, do not want another Biden-Trump election, right? They want new leadership at the top of both of these tickets. The people, you know, people, you know, especially the independents, right, who will really, you know, I think determine this election, you know, and also kind of the more centrist elements of, you know, the B side and the R side, they're so hungry for new leadership. And, uh, you know, and it, again, that, that, that's just a bipartisan desire. Um, and I think that that desire might cut a little harder against Biden, just in the sense that I, he has a bigger issue with the age issue. You know, Trump is obviously getting older, too, but Biden's just showing it a little bit more. So, you know, that's I think that's the larger context is a, a, a bipartisan national desire for, you know, new leadership. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the differences in the world as you see it. Uh, President yeah. President, uh, former President Trump talking openly about pulling out of NATO, uh, President Biden saying we have to get support to Ukraine. How do these two things play out in a presidential race, do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, how does foreign policy play in, you know, U.S. elections? And, um, you know, I, I, I think probably plays less than domestic politics. I mean, we can take that idea to the bank. But, you know, it's 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 there. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a significant issue, I think, because when you again, when you look at the polls and what people are worried about, um, there's an interesting piece that's like last week on this. Um, you know, a lot of Americans, when they list the things that they're worried about, are worried about things that are going on in the world. You know, the risk of, of war, of a world war, of the U.S. becoming involved in more wars, especially with Russia and China. So I think it does matter in that context. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm really deeply alarmed by things that Trump has been saying for a long time about pulling out of NATO, um, because NATO has been the most successful military alliance in history. Um, and I think, you know, the the strategic experts who I read and and just my own sense of you know following these issues for 30 years, you know, I think that the risk of you know a world war, if you will, right, the U.S. fighting the Russians in combat, fighting the Chinese in combat. I think those risks go way up if we let uh, Russia win in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, even worse, if the United States were to pull out of NATO, those would send such weak messages to Moscow and Beijing, and it would only embolden them. So let me ask you this. In terms of what what the American public sees, is it a big issue? Is this within the top five issues, do you feel? Because clearly, I mean, you, you look at it, this is the big issues. I mean, the funding for Ukraine matters. What, what's happening in the Gaza Strip matters. I mean, all of these things are going to define our country to the world. Does it matter to the American people, do you think? I don't know. That's a hard one. I mean, I, you know, again, I, um, I think it, it it probably gets kind of translated in you know again just kind of concerns about the United States getting brought you know brought into a war and I think that you know people you know I think Biden and you know Republicans who are strong backers of NATO like Mitch McConnell and a number of others you know I, I think that they need to you know really really clearly spell out you know why the NATO alliance is in our strategic interest in keeping the world peaceful. Why not letting the Russians win in Ukraine is enormously important for, again, maintaining deterrence of uh, the Russians and of the Chinese, because the Chinese are watching 
uh, what's going on in Ukraine so closely. Our, you know, you read the public accounts of this. Our intelligence agencies have picked up all sorts of indications that Beijing was really, really rattled when the Ukrainian people using U.S. arms and training and, you know, the Ukrainian military, right, stopped the Russians from taking over that country in three days like they expected. The Chinese are watching it really clear, closely because their claim to Taiwan is pretty much the exact same claim that Russia has to Ukraine, this idea that, you know, you've got a nation and they have this right of unification of like going and conquering, you know, other places that they regard as rightfully theirs. Um, so, it, you know, basically Russia, Ukraine and, and China, Taiwan, same thing. And so the Chinese have been looking at this really carefully and they were really rattled at how well uh, the Ukrainians resisted the Russians, how the U.S. helped them. If the Russians succeed in, uh, you know, taking over Ukraine, um, and if the United States turns tail and runs or cuts some sort of like, you know, Munich deal, which was cut before World War II, where it just signaled so much weakness by the United States and its allies, um, you know, I, I think that if that happens, I think the chances of the Chinese trying to invade Taiwan goes way up because, the, you know, Chinese would reasonably, reasonably decide, right? Look, American turned turn tail in Ukraine, gave it up. Um, you know, we're going to go after Taiwan. Those weak Americans will back down again. So I, I just I think I think there a strong case needs to be made to the American public about NATO and about Ukraine. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Uh, stick around, Dakota. Just a couple more questions for you. We didn't let him go. That's right. We got a chance to visit with uh, Dakota Rudisell. Dakota is, uh, well, he's one of my experts or one of the guys I look to for advice and knowledge when it comes to politics that involve uh foreign relations and what's happening in uh, Gaza right now and the pushback that President Biden is getting and his administration is getting uh, by a number of Americans. And it isn't just uh, Arab Americans. It's it's a lot of Americans. Dakota, if you were Joe Biden, if you had his ear right now, what would you tell him? Well, I would say, uh, you know, on the substance of the foreign policy with regard to Israel and Palestine, I would, number one, tell him to keep pushing hard, uh, leaning on the Israelis um, and the other negotiators um, who are meeting to get a ceasefire of some kind and get some way to uh, to help the civilians in Gaza who, you know, just a, a massive, massive numbers of people have been, you know, most of the most of the population um, had been displaced. Um, you know, they're all traumatized. And the risk here is that, you know, by traumatizing the civilian population of that area, right, you're just driving them into the arms of Hamas, the terrorist organization that attacked Israel on October 7th. Um, and so it's, you know, it's kind of penny wise, pound foolish. Uh, it looks the way that Israel has gone about battling uh, Hamas, where, you know, there, I would I would love to see an assessment by you know somebody who's really really expert on you know Hamas and that area and say you know how many Hamas members has Israel killed versus how many more Hamas members Israel is Israel probably creating by you know traumatizing the population there. So that's number one. The second thing I would tell Biden is you know, really needs to push on the Israelis and work with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, which is not a friend of Hamas. Tell them we need a long-term plan for the for the area that involves the Israelis and the Palestinians both living there, right? Neither side can expel the other. You know, there are crazies on both sides who have these ideas that well, you can just, you know, ethnically cleanse the other. That's immoral. It's not going to happen. They need to find a way to, to, to live together. 
And, you know, both the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority need to have a really solid plan for de-radicalization within their communities um, and halting what is really a doom spiral of violence and extremist politics. When you when you look at Benjamin Netanyahu, do you see a man that wants Joe Biden to be president? Because when I see Benjamin Netanyahu, I see a man who would do everything he could to make sure Joe Biden wasn't president. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, Biden's been leaning on Netanyahu to to do a better job adhering to the law of armed conflict in uh, the war in Gaza and to you know not traumatize so many of the Palestinian civilians, cut back with the uh, Israeli uh, settlements in the West Bank, which are just stealing land, um, you know, year after year after year, just stealing the land of Palestinians who legitimately live there and then, you know, building uh, uh, these uh, settlements by the Israeli settlers. You know, so Biden's been leaning on him. Um, but I, I think that Netanyahu's impression is that Trump probably wouldn't put any pressure on him. And, you know, they both kind of Trump and Netanyahu both have a kind of a similar you know, uh, demagogic, you know, style and, you know, always pushing for more, you know, for, you know, making claims of, you know, total power. You know, Trump famously said Article two of the Constitution means I can do anything I want, which is not true. <laughs> and Netanyahu um, in, in, in recent years, he's backed off on it recently. But in recent years, basically what he was pushing to do was eliminate the power of the Israeli Supreme Court to limit what the parliament does and limit what he does. Um, you're looking for more power. So I think, you know, Trump and Netanyahu, I think, are, are, are pretty similar. But I, I think it would just be terrible for uh, Israel to go farther in that Netanyahu direction, because, again, what they're doing, you know, they're, they're, too, they're too indiscriminate approach to waging the war in Gaza, number one. And second, the endless uh, violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, the endless expansion of the Israeli settlements illegally. I think it's just going to drive more and more and more radicalization by the Palestinians, create more and more terrorists. It's not sustainable. So I want to. I've got less than a minute here, but Dakota yeah. Rudisellmeyer. So he's an associate professor of law at the Ohio State University. Could you imagine a scenario being a student of history where Ronald Reagan would ever see his party embracing Vladimir Putin the way they are? It's really stunning, isn't it? Um, you know, just the just the turnaround on that we've seen. You know, Reagan, you know, people who are around then or study his legacy, you know, will have a variety of opinions about him on his politics and whatnot. But, you know, something that was so inspiring about Ronald Reagan is how he understood the mission of the United States and the world. You know, yeah. we are the city on the hill and the beacon of liberty worldwide. And he stood up, you know, to the Kremlin and he stood up to inhumanity and to East Germany, to everyone. So you're, you're yeah. right. Dakota, always good to talk to you. Thanks for giving me time, buddy. Anytime. You bet.